Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is the 14th of September, 2013, and this is not a regular episode of the podcast. As I mentioned in this past week's episode of New World Next Week with James Evan Pilato, I have been absolutely burnt out through my coverage of Syria and 9-11 over the past couple of weeks, literally staying up all night on several occasions. So I decided to take the weekend off, and by take the weekend off, I mean do another Questions for Corbett episode, because the questions have been piling up. It's been quite a while since we did an episode of QFC, so it's uh, it's time to clear the decks and answer some of your questions and comments. As always, I'd like to stress that I cannot physically, possibly, humanly respond to all of the comments and questions that do come in, but I do try to read everything that comes in. I do thank you for the feedback and the comments and the questions, so please keep sending them in, and please don't take it personally if I'm not able to get back to you individually or get your comment on air. Uh, On that note, of course, the ways to get your question or comment in for future QFC episodes is to either write via the contact form on CorbettReport.com or to write a comment on the Questions for Corbett video uh, or to send in a video response via YouTube or uh, on Twitter at CorbettReport. But people might have noticed that YouTube has actually stopped the video response function. Apparently only four out of one million people clicked on any given video response video, so they've decided to scrap that function altogether so you can no longer leave video responses to YouTube videos, which complicates the process of leaving video responses uh, questions for the next Questions for Corbett episode. So as a way of, uh, of getting around that, obviously I do still want video responses and I do uh, will give priority to them. But in order for me to find them, the best way to do this is if everyone who wants to put a question for Corbett in through a video response, please, when you post your uh, question to YouTube, just use the hashtag QFC, hashtag QFC in the title. And if you do that, I will find it and I will put it in the list for next uh, episode of Questions for Corbett. So hashtag QFC, you can also use that on Twitter. So it's a little bit easier for me to find the questions for Corbett for the next episode. On that note, we do have a lot of stuff that's come in over the past month and a half, so let's get straight into it. And we'll start with a YouTube question, this one from YouTube user JJSmith3S. Hey James, two questions for you. Uh, The first one is, given Russia's position, their insistence that acting without a UN Security Council resolution would be illegal is quite logical. Uh, However, this back and forth ultimately places more emphasis on the UN and potentially more power, in my opinion. Do you see this as insidious in itself, the UN self-aggrandizing power, or are we simply at the moment that we're hoping that the Security Council can block an escalation in the conflict? Um, do you see any solutions in or to subverting or bypassing the United Nations besides simply ignoring it? And the second question is, I just finished the video of the passionate Syrian woman at the town hall meeting pleading with John McCain um, not to intervene in Syria on the behalf of the um, Al-Qaeda mercenaries, I think as she calls it. Um, What does this say about the mainstream narrative of Al-Qaeda that that still largely prevails? Do you see the myth of Al-Qaeda as an onion in that the truth lies in the core and that the false layers have to be peeled away before the truth is discovered or do you see it simply as a connection that has to be made or an aha moment if you will so thanks 
All right. Thank you for the questions. And th- those are some, some very good questions. They bring up a point that I did try to raise in the latest New World Next Week, where we talked about uh, Vladimir Putin's op-ed in the New York Times. And I made the point um, with James that although I do agree with, with a lot of what Putin was writing in that, and I thought it was a, a masterstroke geopolitically speaking, I am very uneasy with the way that this is seemingly reifying the United Nations Security Council as the supreme body that will be the arbiter of all international actions, as if the UN Security Council's stamp of approval on an illegal war of aggression would make it any less illegal or any less a war of aggression. Of course, that's ridiculous on its face, so I think we have to be very careful in the anti-war movement not to celebrate the United Nations aspect of the of playing against the uh, the illegal war of uh, aggression against Syria. And it's difficult to do that because, again, anything that stops the war is got to be for the good, right? And to a certain extent, yes. But I think that we have to work around and not expect or not wait for or not hope for the United Nations to come along and be the savior of the anti-war movement or to be that calm voice of rationality. Because, again, the UN Security Council giving a stamp of approval to something does not make it any less uh, illegal. And uh, on the note of Al-Qaeda and the myth of Al-Qaeda, I think you're exactly right about that. I think, unfortunately, even the alternative media has abandoned some of its deeper analysis of Al-Qaeda because it does make a very compelling soundbite that the U.S. is supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria. And to a certain extent, this is true because Al-Qaeda, to the extent that it exists as anything, it really exists as an idea, an ideology. It's not really an organization per se, but the Al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who I deconstructed in a previous podcast episode, has actually officially taken over the reins of Jabhat al-Nusra, the uh, Syrian branch of al-Qaeda. So so it has a certain truth to it, but of course the underlying truth of what al-Qaeda is and the fact that it is in fact al-Qaeda might get lost in this mix. And unfortunately, we also see people praising even Rand Paul's recent uh, response to Obama's address, which is head-scratching because Rand Paul is just propping up every single war on terror myth and how it was al-Qaeda that struck us on 9-11 and all of that garbage. So uh, so unfortunately, I think that there is a lot of uh, baby being thrown out with its bathwater as the alternative media rushes to pick up on the supporting al-Qaeda in Syria meme and kind of loses track of the al-Qaeda is a creation of the Western Intelligence Agency underlying reality. So I think we have to be very careful with that. Uh, in a similar vein, we have an email in from Max who writes, When we look at Syria and how the U.S. and NATO have been funneling jihadists and al-Qaeda mercenaries into the country, is it fair to assume the same applies in Afghanistan, which could explain why this war has lasted 11 years against the most powerful military alliance in the world? If so, would it therefore be right to assume U.S. and British soldiers have and continue to be killed for the purpose of maintaining the structure and lie of the war on terror? End quote. Excellent question, Max. And in fact, we don't have to speculate about that or go too far out on a limb. We can take uh, Hamid Karzai, the president of Afghanistan's comments from earlier this year, when he said essentially the same thing. He said that he felt that the U.S. was teaming up with the Taliban to allow the attacks or stage the attacks that are ongoing in the country in order to justify the U.S.'s ongoing presence in the country. Because, of course, they're scheduled to pull out in 2014 under the terms of the ISAF uh, agreement with uh, the NATO 
co-occupying forces, but they're not going to pull out. And in fact, this is something that I talked about recently in an interview with Christoph German, who is a contributor to BoilingFrogsPost.com. We had a very interesting conversation about this very point and about the Afghan withdrawal and how, in fact, the U.S. forces have everything to gain by the Taliban continuing to commit these attacks and destabilize the country. So I think you're right. Um, ultimately, this is a geopolitical game, just like all the others. And ultimately, just like in every other case, they, they have an investment in seeing the terror attack continue. So Hamid Karzai made that that exact accusation earlier this year, and then John Kerry flew in and presumably gave him some more CIA money, with, like he's been getting all along, and they patched things up and are buddy-buddy now. But, uh, but interesting to see a little bit of truth coming to the surface during that whole uh, brouhaha. All right, let's turn to something completely different. We have a Twitter question in from at Stacy Frew, who writes, interested to know what your views are on U.S. government and UFO cover-ups, genuine or make-believe? All right, thank you for the question. Um, well, basically, make-believe would be my, my uh, assessment of this matter. I think that uh, things like secret weapons technology are cloaked behind this UFO cover-up meme. And, um, and uh, I, I think that... There, there may be some genuine whistleblowers from government who genuinely believe that they have evidence of extraterrestrials or what have you, but I think that that's probably been planted on them to give them a reason to come out and blow the whistle and, and be that whistleblower that will reveal the truth when, in fact, they're just setting up a long-term agenda. I think the long-term agenda is twofold. One is a cover for secret weapons technology. The other is the, the preparation, the long-term preparation for Project Bluebeam, which fits in with not only what we know about Project Bluebeam, but also the comments of people like Ronald Reagan and even Paul Krugman in a bizarre interview on CNN recently where he said, well, it would be such a good thing if aliens invaded. That would be a good thing for the economy. I mean, just bizarreness like that, that's difficult to shoehorn into anything other than a narrative for uh, the long-term plan to stage a fake alien invasion, which sounds ridiculous and is ridiculous, but I, I think we are being prepped for that. So people can look at people like Bill Cooper, who spouted this alien nonsense until he said, well, actually, now I think I was probably being misled about it the whole time. One wonders if he'll take back his statement about seeing the holographic Jesus being uh, crucified by the hologram shown to him by the time-traveling aliens. I don't know if he'll re retract that part. Oh, wait, uh, he, too late for that. All right, uh, let's move on to uh, YouTube user Red Buffoon, who has uh, this video comment. Hi James, love what you're doing. Humans in general seem to want to be told what to do, how to behave and what to believe. This seems to me to be a direct result of an infantile need for parenting and the illusory safety of being taken care of by some powerful benefactor, be that a god, a king or a government. I suspect that this is as a result of a deliberate policy of the puppeteers to keep us as psychological children and wonder if you have any comment and especially any ideas for a way to adultize the general population. Thank you for that video question. I, I think that is an important analogy that you raised there, and it's one that's been raised many times before, but is worth it because I do think that we do get our fundamental roadmap for the way that society should be organized from that first unit of organization that we're all exposed to, the family. And so we tend to think of the nation uh, metaphorically as a family. And in that construct, what is the, the government? Who are the leaders? They're the parental figures. So if we have a problem with our sibling, we turn to mommy or daddy to come and, and solve things for us, to, to meet out judgment upon our enemies. 
And, uh, and this is unfortunately the analog that really does form the map for our entire lives in many ways. And we tend to replicate the family institution time and time and time again in the world around us, whether that's through the hierarchy of the, the workplace or whether that's through the hierarchy of the, the nation generally. And uh, even the idea that we are in a nation, a big family that is, well, we're all together because we live in the same geographical area. Again, we replicate the family model writ large over and over again. And on that note, um, I would turn people's attention back to Corbett Report Radio episode 020 uh, on Liberty, where I mentioned the famous quotation from David Boaz, conservatives want to be your daddy telling you what to do and what not to do. Liberals want to be your mommy, feeding you, tucking you in, and wiping your nose. Libertarians want to treat you as an adult. And I think that that is the point of what I'm attempting to do politically, is awaken people to their responsibility as an adult human being who can take care of themselves and should not be relying on mommy or daddy government to be taking care of things for them. We are adult human beings who can interact as adult human beings, and when we give up that 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 very fundamental part of our nature as adult human beings to make our own decisions and to interact with people peacefully and voluntarily, then we are giving up a key piece of our humanity, and that is to our detriment. So uh, thank you for the question. Um, let's move on to the next one. This one, uh, along similar lines, we have a question in from Pierce, who writes, I have come from a libertarian standpoint, but have gravitated to a more radical anarchist state of mind. Yet the more I peel the onion, it seems as if the state is being controlled by a group of super-wealthy globalists. When you hear a lot of anarchists talk about the dangers of the state, they seem to forget that the CFR and entities like that have more power and influence than the government. Or perhaps they are the government. I was hoping you could speak to this, and perhaps more broadly to the notion that there is in fact a state within the state. Thank you very much for this question, Pierce. This is a question that a lot of people have. I think this is one of the underlying issues that a lot of people have with anarchy. It's the idea, well, we need this state to protect us from the the, the shadow government, the, the CFRs and what have you, which I think is the exact opposite of the actual nature of the problem. Because when we look at something like the CFR, of course it exists in the Council on Foreign Relations and groups like that wield power, the real power, the real political power from behind the scenes, precisely because they are behind the scenes and out of public spotlight and thus can do their machinations and uh, and influence the uh, the policy of the government but it is precisely that mechanism by which they achieve their power they have to influence the machinery of the government they have to take over the foreign policy agenda of the united states for example in the cfr's case or they have to steer the the country into war in the case of the military industrial complex but in an anarchist society where there is no state, there is no government, there is no one with a gun and the authority to use that gun to come to your door and say, give me half your money or I'll lock you in a cage. Um, it, when that, that is taken out of the equation, the only thing that the oligarchy can do is individually try to get each and every single individual to go along with what they're doing through whatever force or coercion might be involved there. But uh, again, they cannot possibly function on an individual level like that. The only way that this authority can function is if every single person believes that there, imagines, make believes that there is this government that has this authority to to direct your life and to tell you what to do. And because we assign it that authority, no one thinks to revolt against that fundamental lie, that lie of uh, of the, this group of special people with special hats and badges who can tell you what to do and uh, can do things that you personally can't do. 
Uh, it's a, it's a ridiculous situation on its face, but it only works because we believe in the myth of government. So yes, there is this shadow government entities like the CFR and Bilderberg and what have you that do wield the power from behind the scenes, but the power that they wield is precisely the big stick of government. So making more government to try to control the people who are trying to control government doesn't make sense from any level. The point is to remove the big stick of government. And from that point, then it's a question of them having to try to control each and every single individual on the planet individually, which is a ridiculous state of affairs and um, untenable. So that is the, uh, the short answer. And there's a lot to say there, so we'll continue to come back to that point again and again in the future, I have no doubt. Uh, let's move on to a question from Bert, who writes, is, China news, is China's new forced urbanization of 250 million of its rural population a blueprint for similar schemes in the rest of the world? Uh, excellent question, Bert. Thank you for sending that in, because this is something that's happening right now that I, I don't see covered anywhere in the alternative or the mainstream media. Uh, I've only seen passing references to this, but uh, for people who don't know, yes, over the course of the next decade, China is going to move a quarter of a billion people from the Chinese countryside into the Chinese uh, cities, in, uh, into this mass urbanization that's going to be taking place. Absolutely unprecedented in the history of the planet to have a quarter of a billion people being moved into the cities all, all in 10 years like this. Just an incredibly ambitious project. And, um, and well, it will, be <coughs> it will be fascinating to see how this turns out. Um, I, I'm certainly wary of what this all means, but it will be just fascinating to see logistically how this can possibly be done. And it will involve um, just changes on a societal level, on an economic level that are just almost unimaginable. So it's going to be a very interesting ride. But ultimately, the answer to your question is yes. I think this is going to be a blueprint for the greater Agenda 21 agenda of trying to herd everyone into the city so that they can wall off the countryside and use it for the pleasure of the elite, um, which is the long-term plan for the uh, for Agenda 21 and the like. So, uh, so I think this is going to be a blueprint exactly as George Soros has said time and time again, China is the engine of the New World Order and Henry Kissinger has said that the, the, uh, China is the model for the New World Order and, uh, and David Rockefeller called China a grand social experiment when he was praising Chairman Mao in his obituary in the New York Times in the 1970s. Uh, China is very much the kind of experimental laboratory for these globalists and I think this is just another aspect of that. So this is something I'm going to be keeping track of. At the very least in my uh, newsletter, I'm, I'm going to be writing more about this as it continues to unfold because it will have some profound implications and ramifications. And I, I'm just very curious to see how this is going to work or hopefully not work so that, uh, so that we can actually reverse the process of urbanization, which I think is an important point of maintaining our independence. Uh, on that note, let's turn to another YouTube video, this one from YouTube user Jared Schneider. Have you ever knowingly been approached, directly or deceptively, by an individual or agency that attempted to entice you into working for their nefarious intentions? Also, are you aware of any researchers or journalists who have began with the genuine intent to expose the untruths of this world, only to be persuaded into altering their motives? Lastly, can you name any serious researchers who, in your opinion, share your incorruptible passion for the truth, but are little known or appreciated that you are willing to recommend? Thanks, and keep up the good work. All right, thank you for the questions, Jared. Um, the 
short answer to your first question is no. I've uh, never been approached or attempted to be bribed. I, I've heard other people tell stories of being offered millions of dollars to shut up or being threatened to shut up and the like, but uh, nothing of that sort has ever happened to me. And I think that that's important in and of itself, because I think a lot of people out there are afraid to start speaking up on these types of issues, because they think as soon as you do, the, the government's going to be watching you and they're going to be breathing down your neck and there's going to be threats and spies and secret agents and cloak and dagger and all of this. It's, uh, it's nothing so glamorous as that. And I really don't think that they care so much about the, the average person starting a YouTube uh, blog or, or vlog or starting a blog on the internet or what have you. And uh, again, the point is ultimately that, uh, that if there's millions of us out there doing this, there's no possible way they can physically sit there and monitor and intimidate us all. So I think the point is to speak out and not worry about the cloak and dagger type stuff. Because again, I've seen absolutely none of that in my own experience. Um, are there any researchers uh, who were corrupted that I know of who were corrupted? I don't know. I mean, again, all of that would just be speculation, and I don't get into that because uh, I don't have any first-hand knowledge of it, so um, so I don't speculate on that. Are there any little-known researchers that I recommend? Um, none that you wouldn't be familiar with if you watch the Corbett Report. I mean, there's no secret sources of information or podcasts I secretly listen to that you guys don't know about. I tend to have the people that I listen to on the program in one form or another, so uh, I read uh, Pepe Escobar's articles, so I have him on the program. I uh, listen to all the Boiling Frogs Post uh, podcasts, so I have those podcasters on the program. Uh, I, I listen to TragedyandHope.com, so I'll often make mention of them or, or direct people to their website. I mean, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The people that I have on the program tend to be the people that I, I interact with and I get my sources of information from. I think there are certain people out there who are doing excellent work who aren't getting enough attention, like, uh, for example, Brock West of APPerspective.net, who, by the way, is also also the associate editor at FukushimaUpdate.com and posting webs, uh, posting articles to that website on a regular basis. So he's doing some excellent work and also doing interviews on uh, on uh, Leon Petard's uh, Fair Income Radio and uh, The Last Defense 2012 and other places like that. Um, uh, so there's a lot of people that I should be mentioning here that I won't because I I don't want to leave anyone out. But again, just the just look at the interview list and uh, generally the media people that I have on or tend to be the people that I'm listening to. So no secret sources of information there that you wouldn't already know about. Uh, let's move on to the next question. This one in from Rob. Do you have any additional information about two top officials, John Iglis and James Cole, who fled the U.S. after reporting to Congress about NSA spying? Uh, thank you very much for this question, Rob. It's an important one because I've gotten it in from a few people now, and I would just urge people to take, if, for example, if you have the names like John Inglis and James Cole, please just take those names and type them into startpage.com. And when you do so with this particular uh, pair of names, you're going to find that the second article on the list that comes up is a link to Daily Costs, which reports, uh, you know, breaking news, these two top officials have fled the U.S. And uh, this is where this stems from. And this has got kind of picked up, I guess, and disseminated by some people, maybe in the alternative media. I'm not sure exactly how it got out, but this became a big story. Wow, these two officials have fled the U.S. How come we're not hearing more about it? Well, we're not hearing more about it because it's not true. It's a satire piece. And uh, when you click on that Daily Kos article and you start going through, you'll notice that they keep talking about these two officials and how Eric Holder is saying they, they must be held accountable and President Obama is saying that they must be tracked down and uh, and brought to justice and they must be charged under the Espionage Act and blah, blah, blah. But every time they make a statement like that in that article, there's a hyperlink. You follow the hyperlink and you find out it's not about John Inglis and James Cole. It's about 
Edward Snowden. So what he's done is create a satire piece where he takes Edward Snowden's story and imagines, well, what if the the apparatus of the U.S. government was not going after this whistleblower? What if it was going after the people in the positions in the NSA and uh, positions of authority who allowed these abuses of power, these truly illegal things to happen? That's the way it should be. That's the way we would want it to be. So the, the people who should be fleeing justice are not Edward Snowden and the like. It should be these NSA officials who are flagrantly violating the Constitution. Um, it's a satire piece. I wish that it had a big blinking title satire in bl- blinking red letters over top of it just so people would not miss the point. But unfortunately, it doesn't. It's portrayed as if it's a real news piece, but it has all the reality of an onion piece. So this just goes to show once again It is absolutely vital to find a source of information in a story like this and to follow the hyperlinks and everything because it could be completely made up. It could be someone who's just playing a joke on you. It could be someone who's uh, who's just trying to lie for a certain purpose. Who knows? So when you see a story that's kind of unbelievable, remarkable like this, please try to follow it back to the source. And more often than not, you'll find it is probably too unbelievable to be true. Uh, Let's turn to the next question. This one in from... P-L-V-S? I don't know how to pronounce that. Let's say Plovis. Plovis writes, Hi Corbett, I would like to know the origin and extent of funding and backing, if any, for Soviet Bolsheviks in Russia during the three-year civil war against the Tsar and the to- and after-toppled Tsarist regime from the United States, the UK, and any capitalist country and their banking system or private corporations. Okay, excellent. Yes, thank you for the question. And the short answer is I would direct people once again to the work of Antony Sutton, specifically Wall Street and the Bolshevik Resolution, Revolution. Um, I'm not sure that's what the title of the book was off the top of my head, but at any rate, I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can go and find it for yourself. Of course, any of the interviews Anthony Sutton has given on this topic as well is quite valuable. I've mentioned it before on the podcast, so I will include a link to, to a uh, representative interview on the subject again. That's a good starting point and from there, you'll find a lot of different links to sources where you can find out more about this connection. But yes, the Bolshevik Revolution was completely 100% made possible by, supported by, funded into existence by the the bankers, the Wall Street uh, banking complex and the train of gold and uh, that helped Lenin get into the smuggle Lenin into, into uh, Moscow and all of this. So it's a fascinating story, one that does deserve follow up. So um, I probably will do a podcast about that in the future. Next up, we have an email from Kirk. He writes, uh, a Wall Street Journal article states, many central banks in rapidly growing countries have less than 2% of their reserves in gold, including China, Brazil, South Korea, and Malaysia. By contrast, the U.S. has 72.8% of its reserves in gold. True statement? If not, what's the real scoop? If so, could you explain the term reserves in gold? Uh, Yes, very good question. Thank you for that. Uh, I think to understand this and what's going on here, we have to understand the term, the concept of foreign reserves, which are basically money held in foreign currencies that are held by a central bank in order to do the type of jiggery pokery that's required to kind of keep a currency at a certain level. So for example, the, the yen or the euro or what have you tends to trade in a certain bandwidth compared to the US dollar say. And in order to keep their currency as strong or as weak as they want it to be, 
that that requires um, operations that are carried out by the central bank to to either buy more f- foreign currency using their currency or to sell their their currency for for foreign currency or what have you, and uh, in order to maintain the value of their own currency. And so a lot of countries keep their foreign exchanges primarily in U.S. dollars because, of course, that's the international currency of exchange. That's the global reserve currency. That's the way that people basically keep their their currencies in a certain trading bandwidth. Um, For the U.S., obviously, they don't need U.S. dollar reserves because they have the U.S. dollar as their currency. So their foreign reserves do tend to be mostly in gold, at least Theoretically, um, they do have some euro, they have some yen, they have some I- IMF um, holdings, and they have some special drawing rights. But the the majority of their reserve, at least theoretically on paper, is gold, something like 216 million ounces they say they have in Fort Knox and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and other locations. Um, but Again, they haven't allowed an audit of the gold for 50 years. Um, They wouldn't even allow Germany to see the gold that they supposedly own that is being stored in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. They can see physically, uh, they can see it, but they can't physically inspect it and things like this. This is because a lot of the gold is fake. A lot of the gold is leased out to other places. So it might physically be there in the vault, but it's not owned by the government. Um, Basically, I'm very, very, very skeptical about their 216 million ounce figure. And I don't believe that they really do have that amount of gold. golden reserve but that's theoretically what they have in reserve um very interesting topic that deserves a lot more explanation than that so i would direct people to uh to once again to my newsletter where i have written about this in the past talking about foreign exchange reserves and the uh, the global reserve currency and what that means a very interesting subject let's move on to another twitter question this one from at twisted economics who tweets how do we get people around the world to have intellectual discourse about the solutions for fukushima and how bad is it? Um, well, how do we get people around the world to have intellectual uh, discourse about the solutions for anything, really? And unfortunately, the answer to that is we can't. We can't get. We can't make people have those kinds of conversations. We can't tell them what to talk about or how to talk about it. The only thing that we can do is provide an, an, a model for the type of discourse that we want to be seeing happening culturally. So if you, for example, if you do prize the the type of uh, discourse that we have here on the Corbett Report, then please support it and please tell other people about it. Please help spread the information. Please start these conversations in your own life, whether that be online through a YouTube channel or Facebook posts or an email list or whatever, or whether that's in real life where you actually talk to people uh, in your real life in at the workplace or wherever you, you congregate to talk to people about these types of issues and model the type of discourse we're going for. That's all we can do. You can lead the horse to water, but you can't make them think. Um, as for how bad is Fukushima? Well, again, I'm going to have to ask people to follow FukushimaUpdate.com for the latest about what's happening at the site and what it really means. Uh, again, the the main concern at this point as to what's actually taking place right now is the contamination of the ocean. And certainly in that area around Fukushima, the contamination of the fish and the basically getting into the the radiation, getting into the food supply is the main concern. Um, Thankfully, the Japanese government has recently reinstated the Fukushima fishing ban, which was in place up until last year when they lifted it. 
but again, how much you trust that the fishermen are all labeling where where the fish are coming from accurately? Uh, you know, I'm sure that there's a bit of underhandedness with all of that. So, so again, my family here in Japan is being very careful and trying to avoid seafood pretty much as much as possible. Um, on on other notes, in terms of uh, what's coming up at the site, obviously the removal of the spent fuel rods from Unit Four is going to be the big big worrying thing of the next few months as they start to do that very delicate work. Again, a very interesting operation. Please follow FukushimaUpdate.com for more about it. Um, There's a lot of potential for that to go very wrong, and if it does so, that would be a much, much bigger scale event than what we've seen so far, and that would be potentially uh, a planetary threatening event. Um, Again, there's been a lot of hype and fear-mongering in the alternative media about Fukushima and that this is the end of the world as we know it, etc. At this point, it isn't, but with the removal of the spent fuel rods from Unit 4, there is definitely the chance for that to go wrong. And if so, that could be a very, very unpleasant situation, so we'll have to keep a very close eye on that. Uh, Let's turn to the next email question. This one from German or German, who writes, My question for you in this case is about Noam Chomsky. I see sometimes you make references to him in a somewhat negative tone, and I was wondering why. Uh, This is a very good question. It's one I tend to get from time to time. I've gotten this several times over the years. So um, basically, the long story short, I I do respect a lot of the work that Chomsky has done. He has talked about a lot of important issues and drawn up a lot of very important uh, uh, facts and, and, and documented them in his works. So if you want to know about, for example, U.S. imperialist aggression in South America in the 1980s, absolutely, read Chomsky. If you want to know about uh, the, the concept of manufacturing consent and how democracy was engineered to be what it is today and how Obama is nothing than a, other than a brand of tooth, uh, t- toothpaste that was sold to the American public, Absolutely, Chomsky talks about this, and he's quite good on those those issues. But it's the issues that he's not good on that are the real problem and is the 1% poison which spoils the other 99%. And that is when he talks, for example, when he supports the conclusions of the Warren Commission on the assassination of JFK, um, which is, I mean, he's too intelligent a person to do that in any other way than knowingly and wittingly. And when he um, retroactively uh, tries to ass- character assassinate JFK by by trying to deconstruct the myth, oh, JFK wasn't going to pull out of Vietnam. That's just a that's just a myth that's been propagated. Uh, it certainly isn't a myth. And for people who want to know about the reality that JFK really was working on pulling uh, the U.S. out of the Vietnam and was getting closer and closer to doing so at the time of his assassination, I would direct people to James Douglas's excellent work, JFK and the Unspeakable, which documents it in a great manner, as opposed to the um, writings of Chomsky on the subject, which are just a disgrace. Or, of course, Chomsky's infamous comment, even if 9-11 was an inside job, so what? Um, Which is just such a ridiculous uh, assertion on its face, which he then immediately contradicts by saying, of course, it would be the end of the Republican Party as we know it, it would be the end of politics as we know it. Well, that's the so what of 9-11 truth, and that's why it's so important to get the truth out there. And I think Chomsky, again, is too intelligent not to know that exactly what he's doing when he uh, 
basically gatekeeps for the left on on issues like that. So a very important figure. I've talked about this several times. I did a YouTube video documentary on this called Manufacturing Dissent, which I will put the links in uh, to the show notes. I also, uh, for example, had a conversation recently with uh, James Tracy on Corbett Report Radio about truth in the academy, where we discussed Chomsky at some length. So I'll throw the link into that as well. And it's important. I still continue to get questions about it. So perhaps I will put a podcast episode out in the future, Meet Noam Chomsky. So we can synthesize some of that information and really drill down into who Noam Chomsky is and and how he does his gatekeeping. Um, Let's turn to an email from Sarah. Sarah writes, I can't agree with you more that the ones responsible for 9-11 should be prosecuted. However, it seems anyone with power to prosecute is also involved in either the carrying out of the attacks or the covering up of the results of the attack. So what can we do? Excellent question, Sarah. Very, very important question. And I'm glad that people are asking this. I've gotten this in from a few people now, so I'm glad that this is uh, being asked because I think there are things that we can actually be doing. There, As I've been trying to state in my 9-11 anniversary coverage, there should be two different aims of the 9-11 truth movement. One is to win in the court of uh, public opinion, where we educate and inform and and win over the public's hearts and minds on the issue of false flag terrorism. And to the extent that we've been doing that, I think we've been exceptionally successful and once again transforming the discourse so that now in the wake of a Boston Marathon bombing, you have the Atlantic coming out saying, what is false flag terrorism? And is the Boston bombing an example of it? Um, I mean, they're, they're actually having to address this concept, which a few years ago was completely foreign to the majority of the public. So this is a victory that we've been having. The other thing that we have to be pressing towards, though, of course, is justice, is seeing the perpetrators of the 9-11 crimes put in shackles, put on trial, and convicted of their crimes. That is what we need to be seeing. And there are avenues for us to accomplish this. In fact, there are several avenues out there, but one personally that I've been involved with that I can speak to is my involvement in what happened in Kuala Lumpur last year with uh, regards to my presentation that to the uh, Kuala Lumpur 9-11 Revisited Conference that was put on by the Perdana Global Peace Foundation and attended by the former uh, Prime Minister of Malaysia and other dignitaries and guests and officials. Um, it was a very, very important a preparatory conference to what could become a war crimes tribunal. And for people who don't know, the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal is this uh, tribunal that, that convenes from time to time to hear various war crimes related matters. And this is the tribunal that a couple of years ago actually convicted Bush, Cheney, and a bunch of the high-ranking neocon cabal of their war crimes in torture at Abu Ghraib and other war crimes that were committed in the waging of the Iraq war and the war on terror. Well, they are in the process of at least thinking about whether to proceed with a commission of inquiry that would then forward their recommendations onto the war crime tribunal for possible war crime prosecution. And again, this is a real court presided over by real judges, international panel of renowned judges who were brought in for this tribunal. It's a real court where real evidence is offered. There's a prosecution and a defense. They have a real trial and come to a real verdict. So this is not a rinky-dink thing. This is not an unimportant thing. And um, and again, this can have exceptionally important effects. I mean, we've already seen a few years ago now, Bush actually had to cancel a trip to Switzerland because there was a credible th- threat that if he set foot on Swiss soil, he would have been arrested for his war crimes. That is a significant victory that we can actually mark certain 
pieces of the globe off limits to these globalist uh, war criminals so that if they ever set foot on them, they can actually be arrested. This is significant and something that can be pressed and that we can at least move a little bit closer towards the idea of 9-11 justice. And, uh, and so this is something that people can actually have a part in. If you go to criminalizewar.org, that's criminalize with an S, as in the British spelling of criminalize, criminalizewar.org. It is the website of the Kuala Lumpur Foundation to Criminalize War, which is the which runs the commission, which recommends to the War Crimes Tribunal. And they're in the process of deliberating about whether or not or how to proceed with the 9-11 War Crimes Tribunal. As far as I know, that's still in limbo and nothing's been decided. And I don't know if there's any momentum towards actually deciding something and getting the ball uh, in motion there. But something that people out there can do write in. There's a contact form on that website, criminalizewar.org. Write into them. Tell them you want to see a 9-11 war crimes tribunal. You want to see a commission of inquiry to to uh, establish the facts and to relay it to a war crimes tribunal. And uh, we can actually get the ball rolling on this and hopefully actually make some of these 9-11 suspects actual in war criminals, uh, credibly accused and convicted war criminals. That would be an exceptional move forward for the 9-11 truth movement and one that you guys out there can help to get the ball rolling on. So once again, the links for that will be in the show notes for this episode. Um, Okay, well, we're completely out of time for this episode. Just finally then, uh, one final question in from YouTube user Fat Fantastic, who wrote, do Australians think that everyone else lives down under? And the answer to that is, of course not. Australians think everyone else lives up over. All right, that's it for today. I am James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Once again, keep the comments and questions coming in, and I will do my best to get back to as many of you as I can and to answer as many questions as I can in future Questions for Corbett uh, series updates. Once again, please use hashtag QFC in the title of your YouTube video responses or on your Twitter uh, tweets uh, as you tweet out your questions, and I will find them for the next episode. And on that note, I'm James Corbett at CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon.